Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Uh, we're going to look in the scriptures now, so if you would, you might take your Bibles and turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. We're coming close to the end of uh, this particular study, and I, I think you would agree with me. It's It's been an enlightening one with some of the things that have have uh, occurred as we've moved through that and looked at the different instruction that is given to us there. This morning, we are kind of stepping into some uh, mystical waters. And so I want you to pay very close attention because we're talking about a world, a drama, that oftentimes we are not aware of. Uh, it takes sometimes an acute sense of what is going on and information about what is going on to really... Uh, see this battle in progress, but it is a very real battle. There are a few, maybe there are a few in this body, but there are a few who on occasion get to see the drama come out from behind the curtain and begin to see that there is more than just the world of sight and smell and touch and taste. Remember a number of years ago uh, when I was completing my doctorate out in California, I was finishing my last class, and the, the professor who was leading that class was Dr. Dennis Guernsey. He was a clinical psychologist there in the Los Angeles area. He had just written a best-selling book, Thoroughly Married, and, and he was taking us through this marriage and family therapy class. And towards the end, a few of the students decided that we would treat him to lunch, and so we took him out, and, and we spent a wonderful couple of hours just interacting about spiritual life and where he was and how he integrated psychology and theology and all that. But in the midst of that, he told us a real interesting story that had occurred uh, just a few months prior to our getting together for this class. He had an individual come and see him for counseling who had been in the military. In fact, he was an officer in NATO for a number of years. And while he was in Europe, he got involved in some occult practices and uh, dabbled with pornography and some other things. And since he had come back to the States, he was having all kinds of weird sensations that, that uh, he wasn't sure how to put all that together. And he was having even visions at times. And um, so we came to see Dennis. And uh, Dennis uh, told us as he unfolded the story that at the time this guy came to see him that he had moved backwards in his faith over the course of several years. He had, he had graduated from a seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, but he'd gone to Southern California and gotten his PhD in clinical psychology from USC and had been out practicing for a while with various therapies and disciplines and those kind of things. And in the process of all that, he confessed that he became far more psychological than theological. And so he was interacting with this young man and um, over the next weeks and months as he interacted with him, he, he applied some of the things that he had learned and, and uh, the, the therapies that he was comfortable with, but this young man didn't seem to be helped. In fact, he seemed to grow worse. Uh, he was having uh, what Dennis considered hallucinations, visions, figures of light and all that kind of thing and, and all kinds of horrendous thoughts. And then Dennis stopped and he said, you know, about four months into treatment, he said, I was sitting there and I had this strange thought from my past. He said, I wonder if this could be a demon. And he went, nah. You know, that, that, he wasn't real sure about that stuff. So a few more weeks went by and, 
In one particular session, this, this young man folded his life. He said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it. And I'm going to say, is there a demon there? And suddenly this young man changed expression, changed colors, slithered to the floor. Foam began to come out of his mouth and he began to speak in a totally different voice. Here's this clinical psychologist up on the chair now. <laughs> trying desperately to recall what he had learned in seminary. <laughs> and he said the only thing he could think of was the movie The Exorcist. And... Uh, kind of showed how far he had gone. And he said, so maybe I should say something like, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out, because he had seen that in the movie. So he said that to this guy who was on the floor that this whole scene just totally took him by surprise. And he said that this young man, as he lay there, in this strange voice, looked at him with these incredibly piercing eyes and said, you don't believe that. And suddenly... Dennis said, I was reintroduced to a realm that I had pretty much forgotten. And it re reawakened my faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's not to say that there aren't great disciplines and great therapies and, and, and good use for psychology, but there is a place for another world. And that's introduced to us here in this chapter. And some of you may struggle a little bit about the things that I might say. Maybe some of you will be helped but I think it's worth considering it because the Bible is very clear about what those spiritual forces are. Now, maybe you've not had that kind of direct contact. I personally have not. But I think sometimes when we don't have some overt thing, we just feel that that's for quacks and lunatics. Oftentimes, we become practical atheists in the way we live out our lives, believing more in, in all the struggle that's going on in our life, believing more in fate and in our own ability to control the circumstances than giving any kind of credence to spiritual forces that might be impacting us for good or for evil. And yet I think we've all felt at some point in time when we have dabbled or deliberated in a particular sin that there was something within us that felt even more powerful than us. Maybe there's been a place in your life where you've been in a circumstance or situation that seemed quite placid and then out of nowhere comes a thought of such horror and such of a murderous instinct that you think, that just can't be me. Maybe it's not. Maybe some of you saw uh, a couple of months ago the feature article, the cover story of Time Magazine. It was just a black cover and it had written on it, evil, does it exist? I read that article with intrigue because that article was not a discussion of theologians, as you might think it would be, but a discussion of historians, a discussion of philosophers and secular thinkers. And I want you to listen to one of these historians make a comment as he thinks about the obvious evil that he sees around him, because whether you believe in the evil of this book most men, most great thinkers, do believe in evil. And here's what Jeffrey Barton Russell had to say. He said, It is true that there is evil in each of us, but adding together even large numbers of individual evils does not seem to explain an Auschwitz, let alone the destruction of the planet. 
Evil on this scale seems to be qualitatively and quantitatively different. It is no longer a personal, but a transpersonal evil. And it is also possible that it is beyond the transpersonal and is truly transcendent. An entity outside as well as inside the human mind. An entity that would exist even if there were no human race to imagine it. That's a historian in 1991 of a secular mindset just looking at the facts. This morning what I'd like to do is to look at that transcendent entity of evil that exists apart from the human race because the Bible has a lot to say about it. In fact, it is the close of this particular practical section of the book because what Ephesians 6 will say is evil is transcendent, evil is personal, evil is an empire, and evil creates in your life and mine an invisible war. Look at verse 10. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes or the strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Notice how it begins here, finally. Paul is summarizing or ending up a section that we've talked about often the practical section of this book in chapters 4, 5, and 6. You'll remember that. We went from the theological to the practical. Uh, when I first read this, uh, my, my first thought was, well, this doesn't sound very practical. I mean, we started out, we talked about in chapter 4 about building healthy relationships. Remember that? Chapter 5, we talked about human sexuality, pro and con. Uh, the last part of chapter 5, how to structure and build a, a good, solid, long-lasting marriage. Chapter 6, we talked about parenting pressures and, and, and workplace pressures and perspectives on those to kind of help us. All those issues are hands-on, user-friendly things that we can grab onto and walk right out of here with. But now, the devil? That seems all of a sudden to be a jolt. And yet I don't think it is at all. In fact, uh, the word finally in my mind is almost Paul saying, let me wrap all this up with a warning. And it's intently practical. And you need to take, bear close attention to it. Because as a matter of fact, you may want to have healthy relationships and you may want to have a good marriage and do well in the marketplace for your employer and, and those kind of things. You may have those desires and you may work hard at those things. But here's what I want you to know. There's someone opposing you. Directly aligned against you. And if everything were right, your heart, the principles, and everything else, it will not be without a struggle. Because our struggle goes beyond just ourself. In fact, you might even underline that word in verse 12 where it says, for our struggle. The word struggle is real important here. It helps break some of our false images about this life. 
You know, there are oftentimes when I think about the heart-to-heart -heart that Sandy mentioned today in the service, and some of you younger women being with an older, more mature woman, a woman, or a, a young man being with a mentor, a, a man who's made it in this world, thinking on the front end, if I could just be like them, then all of my life would fall together. Pressures would go away. Uh, things would just naturally occur because I'm walking with with God, and, and if you're walking with God, you're really close to Him, things should just unfold. Our world pictures that a lot of times. It gives those false kind of images of things just falling into place, that that should be the norm of life if we can just get there. I think that the people who do the best job of that are the beer commercials. Really. I mean, you're watching a ball game, and you get these guys, and they're out having this great time pulling across a, a stream with raging water, and when they get to the other side, the sun's going down at just the right moment, and the guy says, it doesn't get any better than that. And that's kind of like, that's where we should be in life, with everything just working right. Except now there's another beer uh, company that's kind of taking a parody off. You know, the guys are out there, the sun's going down, and he says, it doesn't get any better than this, and all of a sudden, a crate of fresh Maine lobsters falls from the sky. And then the Swedish women's ski team comes in. And the guy says, well, maybe it does. <laughs> you know? Maybe it does get a little better than this. But, you know, I think that's exactly how we sometimes picture what real spiritual life should be like. If I'm really on top of it, or I really get as mature as a Sandy Simmons or a Bill Wells, right? it'd all go good. But you know what? The Bible is a book of reality. And in one word, it sums up this life. Struggle. Struggle. Now, none, none of you would admit to this, but I'm sure there's a number here, a large percentage who, has, who have watched championship wrestling. <laughs> you've been doing some channel surfing, and you've stopped, and you've just gazed for a while at those Hulkamanias. You know, the word here, struggle, is used from the first century to be a reference to a wrestling match. And I think that pictures well the Christian life. It's a struggle against real forces. But here's the thing you need to know. It doesn't mean that you're going to get beat up. I mean, there are times you might have your opponent, you might be on top of your opponent, as those guys do, banging their head into the iron bar, you know, and kicking them and stomping them and all that. But here's one thing you know. No matter if you're on top of it or not, you will always feel the tension of the opponent underneath. Don't you? You can have your, your spiritual house in order. Marriage is going well, those kind of things. Kids are okay. They're not, you know, the police are not calling you or anything like this. But here's what you should feel if you're in Christ. There's someone under you that wants to get from under you on top of you. Always you'll feel the flesh and the tension of the opponent. Now, that to me is the real Christian life. And to me, if you're not feeling that, then there's something wrong somewhere in there. Because our struggle here is against a real, viable, personal opponent. And that uses the word devil. It personalizes it. And that's where we start here. But I want you to know it's going to be a struggle in this life. No matter what maturity level you are. And who do you struggle against? Well, the answer is first given who you don't struggle against, isn't it? Look at verse 12. It says, it's not against flesh and blood. Would you just write in your Bible? It's not against people. But I want you to know this. People will always feel like the problem. They will always feel like they're the problem. Recently, I watched the classic Anne of a Thousand Days. Some of you have seen that 
movie with Richard Burton. He does a great job in this movie being King Henry VIII. But the whole movie is about a historical incident where Henry VIII, desiring to get away from his wife Catherine and Mary Ann Boleyn, goes through this series of people problems. For a while, Anne was the problem because she didn't love him. Then Catherine was the problem because she wouldn't leave him. Then the Pope was the problem because he said divorcing his wife was wrong. But he persisted, and he persisted through the whole movie. And what you felt is, here's a guy who was forced to marry a Spanish woman at age 17 he didn't love, and now he's found true love in Anne, and he wants her. And so in some way, you kind of let him off the hook, you know, when he, when he shoved aside some of what his friends said. But then the intensity of the people problems grew worse. And he shoved off the church at Rome and declared himself the head of the church, of which Queen Elizabeth follows in his train even today. But then after that, his friends still said, what you're doing is immoral. So he had them beheaded. He had his country rise up in revolt. He had them suppressed in murderous bloodshed. And the whole time, you know, you were kind of giving in a little bit, but you were saying, but he loves her so much. And then finally, he proclaims her queen of England, him king of England. And you thought, true love at last. And then suddenly the stark reality, because the whole time you're lured into this, it's a great acting job. And then Anne has her first child, a girl. And you suddenly realize that what has possessed Henry VIII all this time was not a passion for another woman. In fact, I don't think the movie, uh, well, I think the movie did great credence to the fact that Henry VIII didn't know what was possessing him. Because when she had her second, and it was a stillborn son, in a cold, very calculating, dispassionate way, of which you had been lured the whole way in passion, he just simply put her aside and had her executed and moved on to Jane Seymour. Now here's the point. The point is, in all of those circumstances, there are things that appear on the surface to be the problem, people. But at the end of the movie, you know who was the problem? Henry. And Henry didn't even know he was the problem. He was possessed by thoughts and desires that went well past his reason or his abilities. He was driven. You know, the struggle in this life is not between men and men or men and women or people groups or races or nations, though that will always be how it appears. The struggle is within a man and within a woman, and other men and women, and other groups, and other races, and other nations are only the victims of the struggle inside. That's what the scripture would teach. We kill and maim and lust and murder, rob and steal and cheat and lie for things at points we don't even know of in order to get things that once we get them, we're not even satisfied with. And all the time thinking, we're in control. When we're a puppet being pulled oftentimes on a string by forces much bigger, much grander, much more intelligent than we would ever be. Perhaps it would be helpful to give you just a brief, very quick profile of what I call public enemy number one. This person that's listed here called the devil. You might just listen to these rather than try to write them down. I'll just go through some 
characteristics that I think are true of this satanic enemy. First of all, just in his person, it's obvious through the scripture that he's a created being. Uh, the book of Ezekiel tells us that, that he was a created being. We know he's a spiritual being. Job tells us that. And by being a spiritual being, he has access to quarters that material beings don't have. And one of the areas of access to you and me is in through our minds. And we'll talk about that in a moment. He's a finite being. A lot of people uh, balk at this one, but Satan is not a person who can be everywhere at once. He's at one place at one time working on one person. Now, the fact is he's got some uh, minions that follow him around, and they're listed there in verse 12. They're listed, and they're even listed in an organized fashion if you would do the homework with the Greek text because it starts talking about rulers, those who have a certain sphere they oversee, and then he moves to world forces, those who have a much broader expanse, and those kind of things. So they're organized. So you can be influenced by the devil by being influenced by one of his associates. But he's a finite being, and he's a finite being bound to one place, and he can't know the future. He knows what God said, and he knows what he wants to do, but he's, he's much like a person who's still trying to wrestle with the outcome. He's also an awesome being, in the sense that he does have an empire. And he has a great empire. In fact, John says that the whole world, all the things, whether it's a democracy or a communist state, the things that flow out as far as influence lie in the power of the evil one. Well, what about his personality? Well, I think that Paul said it best, he's an angel of light. And I take that to mean he's charismatic in his personality. You know, I've been with people who are in sin, sometimes have fallen into sin, and yet they are so persuasive. By the time I finish interacting with them, I want to let them go. I want to say it's okay that they did this to their wife, or they did this to their kids, or they did this to their company, because they're so persuasive. But it gave me an insight into what Satan's like. You know, I can know that he kills, maims, destroys, and all those other things from the Scripture. But I would bet that if you and I were here, and we had the switch to pull on Satan, and he were to appear and sit in the chair that would electrify him and eliminate him, I think in a brief moment of time, his warmth, his gentleness, his charisma, his soft eyes, his keen intellect and persuasive abilities would make you look at that and knowing that there are corpses strewn for thousands of years in his wake, it would be very hard to pull the switch. That's why he's so difficult to deal with, because he has such charisma. That's why at the end of the, uh, of, as the world is drawn to a close, the scripture says this final world ruler rises up and the whole world worships him, follows after him, because he has charisma. I think it's clear about what Satan's purpose is. When he was with Jesus, he kind of declared that when he asked Jesus to worship him. I think at the end of time, when the world ruler kind of brings this world under his control with Satan's backing, the first thing that happens is they erect this statue of the beast, if you remember in Revelation 13, and ask for worship. But you know, it's a pitiful kind of worship. And we see that worship take place in individuals' lives as they get seduced into worship of other things other than God and get possessed by them because at the end of possession is always destruction. That's kind of how I like to think of Satan. He works and he spins his webs to get a person where they sell completely out to him and at the end when they're at his feet, he shoots them. 
because his purpose is to worship, to get you to worship, and then to destroy. And then let me talk last about just his power. You know, Job 1 gives us some indication that Satan's power is limited by God, and it's used by God in certain long-range positive ways, though that's, I think, beyond our comprehension. Sometimes his power can be overt, like in demon possession, but I think for most of us, it will not be that way. The very nature of the enemy portrayed all throughout the Scripture is he's subtle, crafty, sly, and deceitful. And I want to try all this, to tie all this together for you practically, for you to leave with, and that's this. The devil's most awesome power, is what, the way I see it as I look in the Scripture, is his power to persuade. His power to persuade. You remember, I mentioned just a moment ago that because he's a spiritual being, he has access in some ways to our mind that I don't fully understand, but I see it portrayed in the Scripture. But that means two things for me. That means that first of all, if he's in my mind, he can speak to me directly. And then secondly, it means that some of the things that I think and feel in here as I interact with life may not be my thoughts at all. The originating idea may be somebody else's altogether. Some higher power. Now, you know, you see that in John 13, too. I won't have you turn there for a minute. I want you to look at another passage in 2 Corinthians. But let me just say this. When you get to the Last Supper and Judas shows up, it makes a very interesting statement that's worth lingering over for just a moment. Because Judas shows up for this Last Supper, and then it makes this statement. And Satan, having put it into Judas's heart to betray him, now think about the implications of that. Satan having put it into Judas's heart to betray. Some of you a little older, you remember Flip Wilson, some of the skits he used to do? And uh, when he'd do a skit, he'd say, the devil made me do it. In some ways, that's not true. But here's what I think we could extract, bringing those two together. The devil can suggest it. Sometimes the thought that begins and the thought that first begins to spin may not come out of the human spirit at all, but it may come out of a devilish spirit that has access to that same realm of the mind. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians 11 just for a moment, and let me show you a statement by Paul in that regard. It's more of a summation statement, though there are many statements in Scripture that speak of Satan tempting someone and Satan doing this to someone, even Satan using someone to suggest the thought. Remember, in, 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 at places like in Job and in Jesus' life, Satan suggests the thought. The thoughts then transfer to the person through a person, and the spiritually alert person sees that and responds. Remember with Peter? Peter said to uh, Jesus as he was thinking about, you know, submitting himself for crucifixion, he said, Hey, we need to do something else. You don't need to, you don't need to give yourself. You don't, far be it that you go and die. And as he was making that persuasion, you remember Jesus with spiritual insight said, not, that's the wrong thing, Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. Do you remember Eve in the garden? It's really an interesting situation that takes place there because you've got this tremendous, powerful personality of charisma. And he doesn't just simply run over. He doesn't, he doesn't take his authority and cram it down her throat. He doesn't force her to do anything. 
What is the power of Genesis 3 on Eve? Just the power of suggestion, right? Just taking things and spinning them a little bit out of control, drawing them a little tighter, exaggerating what God said, bringing in confusion until at some point in the process, Eve's thoughts were simply Satan's thoughts displaced in her, but she thought she was making a decision. Now that's the practical point I want to weave all the way through the rest of the message with the armor. Because I think you'll touch a spiritual world in your mind before you'll touch it anywhere else. And how you conclude and how you have the defenses up to know good and evil will determine a lot whether you are pulled one way thinking, oh, I'm just in control, but in reality you're just being used, or whether you're under the control of the Spirit of God and being used in a way that will make a difference for eternity. So how do you combat this kind of power? Well, I think when we get to verse 13, it's very clear it's not alone. We don't combat it alone. We can't do it. Because on this earth, as Martin Luther said, there is no equal. That's why he said, be made strong in the Lord in verse 10. And then in verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. What does it take to stand firm, to not be manipulated, to not be used, to, to be in touch to some degree with the drama behind the curtain? Well, what Paul offers here is just a figurative description of a soldier in armor, and he takes each piece, each of those six pieces, to represent something that can help you when you're feeling under this attack. The first three, if you'll notice, as they come out in verses 14 and 15, start with the the participle having. It's talking about something that's past tense, something that you already have in Christ if you'll just rely on it. The next three, as you get to verse 16 and 17, start with the word take. It's something that you need to appropriate for yourself, not just believe in. One's kind of more, I just believe it. This other's a little more active. You take it and you use it. Now with that, regard, that uh, given, that kind of outline given, let's look at each of those six pieces very quickly and let me mention one particular use and then maybe you can add some of your own. Notice the first one he says in verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Soldier in that day would take his armor, and, and his armor kind of would all be tied together, his breastplate and those kind of things, with a belt that would go under his legs and around him. As it says here, around his loins, and it would be a belt that he uses, Paul uses, for truth. See, when you became a Christian, what you declared was that I believe Jesus' life is the truth. And as Paul moves into his epistle of Romans, he says, let God be true and every man a liar. So the, the basic thing that you receive is a life of truth. You just need to believe it. And yet the greatest enemy of truth day to day are feelings, passions. That's why I think he chose this analogy with the belt around the loins where there's the evidence of passion and feeling. And I think what he's saying here is when there, you enter into a spiritual war, there are going to come times where your feelings are going to tell you one thing while the truth is telling you another, the life of Christ, and your intellect is trying to put it all together. But most of us in those moments are not led by intellect, but just simply by resting in one or the other. Feelings are just our, the belief in the truth of Jesus Christ. 
You know, I watch people, and of course in this congregation there are a lot of intellectual people, but I have to agree with something Ray Steadman wrote that I want to read to you, that most of us are really led by our urges and our desires, no matter how much we pride ourselves in our intellect. He says this, we like to think it that our logic and our reason govern ourselves, but it can be easily demonstrated that this is not true. We are really governed by our emotions, our urges, our desires, our deep-seated, sometimes subconscious wants. It is through these that the devil makes his appeal to us, and so strongly. He makes us afraid that we will miss out on life in some way, or that we will be hurt by some sacrifice, our commitment for God's sake. Remember a number of months ago when I was walking us through Ephesians chapter 5, and we came to verse 6. You might look there in Ephesians 5, 6. We were talking about human sexuality and the lure of immorality and passion. And, and we mentioned the word, let no one deceive you with empty words. I mean, all you have to do is turn on your TV, MTV, a movie, a newspaper, a magazine, a billboard. You're bombarded with life is here. And what an opportunity with that kind of world environment for the enemy to whisper to a person who just left that service, that single, or maybe that married person who's kind of feeling lured and heard the truth proclaimed out of this book and said, yeah, that is the right thing. And they got all that logic and they walk out of here into emotion. And in that intense emotion, logic is thrown to the wind. Reason, if any reason is done, used in any way, it's to, to sort all the feelings into place where I can justify what I'm about to do. And all the time there's this whisper in the mind that says, if it's that strong, it can't be wrong. Are you going to deny yourself what everybody else has? And you're sitting there, but I heard this. Jesus is the truth. I can trust. You'll, you'll miss out. You'll be alone forever. No fun. And after a while, our intellect has organized all those suggestions into a great argument for permission. Emotion is the great enemy of the truth. Then there's the breastplate of righteousness. This righteousness, by the way, is the righteousness that we have in Christ when we believe. We already have it. It's not that we're perfect. We're not getting to heaven because of what we did anyway. We're getting to heaven because of what Jesus did for us. But you see, here's how the enemy uses that. The enemy takes that breastplate and he urges us and moves us to get to that place of permission, promising us everything. And then when he gets us there and he gets us to act, then he turns pious on us and he says, Look at you. You said you were a Christian. You said you had power in the Spirit. I mean, you just did that worship service where you were, were acknowledging how great God was. Our God is an awesome God, and look where you are. You're a slug. You're not a Christian. And you start going, yeah, I guess I just don't have it. And see, I've seen a number of Christians wash out with a heinous sin and never come back because they think, I'm not good enough, when their whole theology that they came to Christ on was that they weren't good enough. 
See, you have righteousness in Christ. Believe it. And maybe you'll get knocked down, but you need to stand firm by getting back up because of the righteousness that you have in Christ. Then there's the shoes of the gospel of peace. What is that? Those are the ones, I think, that hold you up in the storms of life because, you see, in Christ, we have peace. We're, we're not at war with God. God's not our enemy. God's our friend. And when tragedy strikes or we lose a job or we lose a loved one or we get lonely or whatever it might be, see, the enemy likes to come in those moments and say, so this is the abundant life, huh? Wow, man, he gave it all to you, didn't he? But you see, a person like that who believes that, suddenly he feels like God is his enemy. And he doesn't believe the truth that he put the belt on that said, you're at peace with God. His plans for you are not for calamity. All things work together to good to those who love God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But we don't believe that. We just go, yeah, this isn't very good. Maybe God's against me. The shoes of peace go back to the truth. And they say, no, these occasions of turmoil, I have a friend in Jesus. I can turn to him. It is well with my soul. I don't understand it all. But God is for me. Who can be against me? Those are the shoes of peace. Then there's the shield of faith. And when we move to the shield of faith, we move to what we need to take, not just believe. And he says that we're to take the shield of faith so that we may be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Uh, did you see Robin Hood? In Robin Hood, there's this great scene where uh, the sheriff finds out where the merry men are, and he shoots all these flaming arrows. Remember that? Into the camp. And what, what ensued? Panic, didn't it? All of a sudden, there was panic because they were fighting the flames around them and they couldn't keep their eyes on the enemy in front of them, so they just ran. You know, that's exactly how these arrows were used in the first century, to create panic. One area I would like to apply this in is this. There are times in life, and I've been with people in these occasions, where they are in a situation where they're wanting me to tell them that it's going to work out okay. And I'm sitting there on the other side of the table looking at the condition they're in, and I can't see how in the world it's going to work out okay. So to even give any hope that it's going to get better is a lie, because I don't know. And so they're asking me, well, why go on? And the only thing I can say is, believe. That's all I can say. See, there are things that are hard in life. Life's a struggle. There are times it's going to be hard and there's going to be no evidence of why to go on except to believe, to put the shield up and don't panic. If you put the shield down, it's going to get real hot and you're going to want to flee. But I've also seen people... <laughs> who have been in situations that I've looked at that I thought, if I were there, I'd crumble. And they're moving forward in faith. And I've seen God honor that faith. Then there's the helmet of salvation. 
verse 17. This is a little more difficult, but I think 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 helps us a bit. In 1 Thessalonians, it adds another word to the helmet of salvation. It says, the helmet of hope of our salvation. It uses the word hope, and I think that helps me a little bit because hope is what keeps your mind right in turmoil. See, when you're in a situation where you can't see the end from the beginning and nothing looks right or anything like that, and you're going to be there sometime, you can say, I believe, but your mind starts pouring against you because it starts looking to the right or the left, and there's no evidence of anything getting better. I've been in this counseling now for, for six months. I've been working with my marriage for two years, and nothing's changed. And the enemy's going, that's right. And so where and with what can I keep going? What can keep my mind from unraveling? And the scripture says it's hope because God has already told you in advance that there is reward in obedience, that there's encouragement in faith, that there's commendation for honor and dignity and righteousness and truth, and that the outcome is already in no doubt at all, but assured. Do you believe? Do you have that hope? See, David, when his kingdom unraveled, he was chased by his sons, and he was out in the wilderness, issued a great statement in the Psalms that I've looked to many times and seen people hang on to. And here's what it says, I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see one day the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The minute you cannot see hope, your mind will unravel in despair. But it's not because the Scripture has not declared that there is a real hope and He will deliver you. The one who delivers me, we sing about that. It's worth going on. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon that's here, which it says is the Word of God. And that's interesting, the word here is not the Greek word logos, it's commonly used, but rhema. It's talking about the spoken Word of God. It's talking about something that's dynamic in the midst of action. That sword that's used by the Roman soldier was a real short one, and it was only used in up-close, hand-to-hand combat when the two armies met. And what I see he's doing by illustration and metaphor is he's just basically saying to us is there's going to come times where you're going to be in the midst of battle. You're not going to have your Bible per se, not with you. can't carry it everywhere with you. It's going to be a business deal, a business trip. It's going to be the, the, the casting allure of someone's eyes or whatever or money or whatever it might be. But in those circumstances when you're up close in combat, feeling the heat of battle, and somebody makes some suggestion or action towards you that requires a response, there's going to be a voice in your mind at points, an outside force saying, do it. And in that moment, when you're looking around with all this armor but nothing to strike back, what he's saying is, the Spirit will hand you a sword. He'll speak a word. Take it and use it. That's why Jesus told his disciples, don't worry, men, when the Spirit comes, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you in the heat of battle. So when somebody's talking to you one morning and they share with you some juicy bit of gossip that they can't substantiate with some, by, about somebody else, and now it's 12 o'clock and you got one of your good friends out, there will be, at points, this urge, this thought that comes up and says, hey, show them how much you know about what's really going on. You know, Mary... 
And sometimes just because it's good conversation and it makes us feel like, and that's what gossip does, feel like, boy, let me, I'm going to excite you with this. In the midst of that, what's to counteract that? There's a sword. That is, if you've armed yourself with the Word, there's a sword and the Spirit takes what you've learned and uses it in the heat of battle. He speaks and He says, there are six things that the Lord hates. No, seven. The first is a lying tongue. Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Remember that in Ephesians 4? Speak the truth. Only that which is for edification. See, that's how you do hand-to-hand combat. But see, if you're without that kind of armor, all you can do is a defense, and you can't score with a defense. You can only score with an offense, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, if you were to look at this, let's, let's just take a second, I'm finished. But if you were to look at this, where are your weak spots? Do you have an Achilles heel here? Is there a piece of this armor? Is it the fact of righteousness, or is it peace, or is it the Word? Where, where are the weak spots? You know, that's worth thinking about. Let me tell you why it's worth thinking about. Because the war is a real war. That's why it's worth thinking about. And I will promise you that you will be a victim if you don't have your armor on. And you'll be sitting there thinking, well, it's just fate, or that's just what I thought. I, I don't know why I did it. I mean, you hear people all the time, I don't know why, it just, it just happened. I want you to know that behind the curtain of life's realities is another very much real reality that even the philosophers of our day are tantalizingly close to admitting, though they'll never admit this. And that is, there's another force in this world. Yea, two, and one is stronger than the other. What Martin Luther said three or four hundred years ago is still just as true. It was true in his day, though I'm sure people thought he's a lunatic. But he wrote the song that we sing. He says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Look at verse 10. Be strong. Be made strong in the Lord. For still our ancient foe <laughs> doth seek to work us woe. His craft, his power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth. There is no equal. That's why you have to have your armor on. Because without it, there's only one outcome. Losing. Let's pray together. Perhaps as I spoke this morning, maybe there was something that came to your mind where you said, there's more at work here than just me and sin. There's more at work here than just me and unbelief or me and my marriage. Maybe there's an enemy too. I pray that you would take that seriously and that you would look at the full armor of God else you be another victim, another casualty in human history. Scripture says, be on the alert. Your adversary prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Lord, it is our desire as we look here in the Scripture to know the truth, but Lord, we would readily confess we are impotent in applying it. We're not close even 
to being the kind of people you want us to be, and that's why we thank you that our righteousness is in Christ. But Lord, we don't want to stay there. We want to take another step forward. We want to be different. But oftentimes we think our problems are people. And what a classic error that is. Help us to realize that apart from coming to you, appealing to you, breaking apart before you, giving ourselves to you unreservedly, calling you king, we'll lose. And those around us will lose. Lord, help us to walk in truth. And Lord, fill us with your spirit that we may know your presence in those moments when we most need you. I thank you for a body that does love you, that we are fellow pilgrims, weak, sinful at times, but Lord, good hearts, and I praise you for that. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.